0: You are listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org.
1: It's fun to be on uh, this side. So usually on Sunday mornings, um, I'm over here in this section, 11 o'clock hour, best section ever. Way to go. (laughs) Um, Isn't it funny? We come in, we kind of have our place, right? Mine's right over there. You're sitting in my seats. (laughs) So... um, in 1989, uh, my wife Diane and I uh, moved from Southern California to the Sacramento area so that uh, I could go to law school. And um, uh, we ran into some friends who uh, told us that there was a church that was going to be planted in the Elk Grove area called Sun Grove Church. And so, uh, in 1989, we went to the first Sunday service that Sun Grove Church had. It was actually on a Sunday night. So we weren't even meeting on Sunday mornings yet. And uh, we thought this is our place. And uh, we've been a part of uh, this place ever since, and it's been quite a journey, and uh, it's been exciting, and times challenging, and times crazy, and fun, but uh, it's been awesome to see how God has used this community of people um, in this region, and it's been really, really neat. So, yes, I am a lawyer. Um, I know for some of you, it's a terrifying thought, right? You came in Palm Sunday. How many of you thought you're coming in to hear a lawyer on Palm Sunday, right? Yeah, none of you. <laughs> Some of you are thinking about your favorite lawyer jokes. I know, they're pretty good. Um, I don't have a lawyer joke for you, but since I am a lawyer, I thought I should probably tell you a story about a shark. Okay? So there was uh, a wealthy rancher, and he invited a bunch of people over for a party, and when they had all arrived, he invited him to his backyard, and the guests were surprised to find that in the backyard was an Olympic-sized swimming pool with a 15-foot great white shark in it. And he looked at his guests and he said, ladies and gentlemen, to the guy who swam through this pool, I'll give one of three things. I'll give either five million dollars in cash or this entire estate or the hand of my daughter in marriage plus a very large dowry. Well, no sooner does he say these words than he hears a splash. And he sees a young man swimming feverishly across and up and out the other side safe. And he's amazed. And so he walks over to the young man. And he said, in all the years of making this pitch, no one's ever taken me up on it. So... I'm here to pay. What would you like? Would you like $5 million in cash?" The young man said, no, sir. He said, well, then, would you like this entire estate? It's yours. I said, no, sir. He said, well, then you must want the hand of my daughter in marriage plus a very large dowry. And the young man said, no, sir. The rancher just looked at him and said, what do you want? The young man said, I want the name of the guy that pushed me in the pool. <laughs> it's probably a lawyer, right? And there was probably a lawyer on the other end of the pool helping him out, right? So it's good, it's good to be here. It's good to, it's good to come to church and laugh. And we love the place, this place because of that. So let's, um, before we jump into scripture, let's pray together. God, um, uh, your word tells us that uh, your word is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to pierce right to our hearts, right to where we live. And so we welcome you to do that in our lives this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 6. And if not, it will be up on the screen. Um, This morning, I want to talk to you from Luke chapter 6 and talk about the challenge that I think Jesus is making to his followers at that time and followers today um, to be and to live lives that are uncommon But let me introduce kind of what's going on here. Uh, You're going to see some scripture verses that are really familiar. Um, And they look like they are the same scripture passages that you would have seen on the Sermon on the Mount, right? In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is probably, though, a different sermon. This is what uh, some scholars refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. Um, I think sometimes we think that Jesus sort of gave one speech right? And they captured it, that one speech in uh, Matthew and in Luke. And uh, probably what really happened is that Jesus gave the same speech, the same message, many times as he traveled around the countryside and spoke to his followers and those who were checking him out. And so we see one sermon in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We see another sermon now, the Sermon on the Plain. Um, It's very similar, but it's Another group of people, uh, another message that Jesus is giving. So who's there? Well, we know that the apostles are there. We know that the disciples are there. So there were people that followed Jesus that weren't part of the 12, but would still be considered disciples of Jesus. There were men and women that followed him around um, through his ministry for three years. Not just the 12 guys that we've uh, come to know, um, but others. So they were there. And then there were just people that were there checking Jesus out. Wherever he went, um, people wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to see him. And I think in this message, Jesus is going to challenge his followers to live a life of uncommonness. Not a life of weirdness, not a life of boringness, but a life of uncommonness. Jesus was anything but common. He lived an uncommon life in his time. And that uncommonness was attractive. It was winsome. People wanted to be around him. Not necessarily always the religious folks, but common men and women wanted to be with Jesus. And so I think we see in, in Luke chapter 6 four characteristics um, of an uncommon life. If you spend any time there, you can probably pick out more. If you look at other times where Jesus is preached, you could probably pick out more. But these are four sort of guideposts in my life, goals, things that I certainly have not been perfect in achieving, imperfect in error and effort, and uh, it is certainly a work in progress. Um, But I think Jesus is challenging his followers then and today to live lives that are uncommon. And so let's look at four areas of uncommonness that I think Jesus would challenge us with today. Um, The first is in, uh, we see in verses 20 through 22. They'll be on the screen, so let me read them to you. Follow along. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you who, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Um, Jesus is confronted with a world very similar to our world today a world in which people are chasing money and possessions and power. There's some things throughout our time and throughout our cultures that don't change. And that is the same thing that we're chasing today. Jesus was facing that same scene 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus lays down a challenge to his followers. It's a challenge to consider the implications of his way in his kingdom. And principally, it's a way to a new type of thinking. He's going to take the disciples' view and their perspective and how they look at life, how they look at the world, and he's going to flip it on its head in this Sermon on the Plain. He does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking those followers' perspective and he's going to flip it on its head and say, I want you to think about things in a whole new way. Now, we could, we could unwrap just what does it mean um, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor. I mean, we could spend all morning talking about that. So what I want to do is talk about from a high level and sort of some summarize for you what I think Jesus is challenging his disciples with here in this passage. Jesus is saying, I think, that I want my followers to think in new ways about happiness, about satisfaction, about poverty, about self-reliance, about righteousness and sorrow and burdens and leadership. My followers will have a different perspective on this thing called life. And I think Jesus is, in a nutshell, saying to his followers, look, the world says depend on yourself, and but I'm telling you, you need to be utterly dependent on God. The world is saying be satisfied and full with the stuff of this world. Chase that. But what I'm telling you is crave the stuff that really ultimately is going to matter. And so he's challenging the hearer then and the reader today to look at life with a whole new perspective. There is uh, annually in Washington, D.C., the National Prayer Breakfast. And at the National Prayer Breakfast, everybody who's anybody in D.C. goes to this thing. From the president on down. And it's a good day. It's a good time. People focus sort of on the stuff that matters for a day. And a number of years ago, a man by the name of uh, Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at a seminary in Dallas, was, was the keynote speaker. He said he got all done, you know, making this address. And again, there's president there and vice presidents there and um, senators and congressmen and women and the, everybody, right? He says, I get all done and people start to scurry away and some people are coming up to say hi to me and talk. And he said, and all of a sudden I look out and I see Senator Mark Hatfield. And Mark Hatfield back at the time was a senator, United States senator in Oregon. And he said, I looked out and Mark Hatfield was stacking chairs. He said, you know, everybody there had important things to go do. They had a country to run. No one would have thought any differently had Mr. Hatfield, Senator Hatfield, left right away to go to his committee hearing or go to important meetings or whatever it was he was going to do that day. No one would have looked askance at that. And yet the man was stacking chairs. Because as a Christ follower, he got it. He got that in Jesus' view of things, the way up is down. And that those who follow Jesus don't ascend to greatness, we descend to it. And so it challenge us as we think about this uncommon perspective. We need more chair stackers in our world today. We need chair stackers in our government. We need chair stackers in, our, in the marketplace, in, the corp- in our corporations, in our law firms, in our schools in our churches, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. We need more chair stackers. People who get that the way up in Jesus' world is actually down. It's in stacking chairs. Well, the second um, thing that Jesus challenges his disciples with is that we're to be people of uncommon love. So let's read verses 27 to 31. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, I want to linger here for a little bit. Because Jesus is calling his followers to display an uncommon love in their interaction with others. It's a, something that can only be described as a radical love. It's a love that acts. And Jesus gives here in this particular sermon two examples, right? One we're really familiar with is sort of the turn the other cheek example. So if somebody strikes you, turn to that person, the other also. What Jesus is probably talking about there in the culture at the time was was somebody that would sort of give a backhanded slap to somebody's face. It was a metaphor for insults. Jesus is saying, when somebody treats you like that, when somebody insults you, even to the point of slapping you in the face with the back of your hand, turn to them the other side of your face. Why? Because my followers are going to be people of uncommon love. And they're going to, when that happens to them, when they are insulted, they're going to look at that person who insulted them and say to themselves, this is someone that matters deeply to God. And it calls upon me to respond contrary to how culture would call upon me to respond. Contrary to how I want to respond. Contrary to how I feel to responding. Responding. But we're to be people of uncommon love. Jesus then gives an example of somebody asking for your coat and giving them another, giving them another one also. So go back in time. At the, at the time, people wore an overcoat and then a coat underneath. And so Jesus is saying to his followers, Hey, if somebody comes along and asks you for their, your outer coat, yeah, give that to them. But don't just stop there. Give them the other coat as well. Give them your undercoat as well. And I think what Jesus is saying to to his followers is that there are going to be people who who give more than that for which they are asked. That we as followers of Jesus are not going to just seek to get get away with doing the bare minimum in life. In our interaction with others. Um, In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives another example. Um, He gives these two examples, and then there's a third, and he talks about a situation where somebody asks you to carry their bags for a mile. Remember, the the people, the Jewish people this time lived under Roman, Roman oppression. And there was a law that allowed a Roman soldier to come up to a Jewish person and say, demand that they carry that soldier's bags for a mile. And a Jewish person would have to do that. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when that Roman soldier who oppresses you comes up to you and asks you or demands that you carry his bags for a mile, don't just carry it for a mile, carry it for two. Because that's uncommon love. That's what's required of those who will be my followers. They will not seek to get away with doing just the bare minimum. Now, it's a demanding standard and one that's very difficult for us to apply. You see, most people are quite ready to do good for those who have helped them or from whom they expect something in return. In my world, that's called networking. But Jesus says that bar is way too stinking low and doesn't go far enough. And so how far is it supposed to go? Well, pretty far. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not going to be up on your screen, but I'm going to read it to you and just listen. Or if you'd like, turn to Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, 'How how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. And who, and who is my neighbor? No, I'm sorry. Do this and you will live. But he wanted, that is the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The implication being that not everybody's my neighbor, it's going to be a short list, maybe. So let's talk about who my neighbor is. And Jesus says, okay. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from, Jericho to, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. At the time, there was great enmity between Jews and Samaritans. We, um, you'll know that Jesus never uses the word good, good Samaritan, right? I mean, that's something that we've come to call it. To the Jewish hearer at the time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. There was that much enmity between those two groups. And yet, Jesus uses a parable to tell his hearers, or to show his hearers, what this uncommon love needs to look like amongst his followers that it's courageous, that it's costly, that it's expensive that it overcomes barriers of culture, it overcomes barriers of religion, it overcomes barriers of race, that my followers are gonna overcome those barriers. They're not only gonna feel pity as the Samaritan man felt it, but they're gonna act with mercy. You see, if I I asked you what the opposite of love is, what what immediately comes to your mind? Hate? Yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind, isn't it? And I think that's because to us, love is this very strong, positive emotion. And so when we think of what's the opposite of love, that strong, positive emotion is a strong, hard emotion of hatred. But what I'd submit to you is that in Scripture, in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching, when he talks about what what the opposite of or what love looks like this uncommon love that the opposite of love isn't hatred the opposite of love is apathy it's the priest and the levite the religious people of the time walking by this man in the street in need it's apathy um, I have the uh, I have the privilege of serving on the uh, board of a international relief and mission organization called MAF or MAF, <clears throat> and uh, it uh, think of a nonprofit airline essentially, and it, we operate uh, the organization operates in um, around the world, not in the United States, but uh, in uh, Africa and Asia, Eurasia, and Latin America, and. Um, does some pretty cool stuff, and you know, I love being a part of that uh, organization as a volunteer uh, board member, and there's a video I want you to see that I think illustrates um, this point of uncommon love, and uh, this has, if I didn't introduce this, uh, I didn't let everybody know in the first service, so this, so in case you're wondering, this was, this actually, this video is from Papua, Papua, Indonesia, okay, so take a look.
0: Hi we are Tim and Rebecca Ingles. We serve here in Papua Indonesia with New Tribes Mission. My name is Mike Wild and I work among the Wano people. These are all my friends in the Wano tribe and we're right now up in the hamlet of Mokundoma. All right today is one of those great days we get to go in and open a brand new airstrip. Uh, they've been working on this strip for a couple of years the name of the place is Mokondoma, so we're looking forward to going in, making a first landing and serving the new tribes missionaries there, the Ingles and the Wilds, so this is one of those awesome days for M.A.F. Yeah, we've uh, been working here with the Wano people for about nine years now, and uh, our goal here is to plant a church that can reach out and reach the rest of the Wano people. The people had actually, at this site where we're at now, had thought about building an airstrip and had started work maybe 10, 15 years ago, but had given up on that, and so we got that going, and over the past two years, the people have worked on this airstrip. We didn't do a lot of the work. It was the tribal people working with us, and we helped them a little bit with food to be able to work, but it was all our project here, and we worked together on it. Two years of work to get this thing done And to see the plane circling by the first time it's just surreal. It's just like it's happening. And he comes in and lands and you just feel the emotions. You know, it's so cool to have an airplane land, touch the ground. The main motivation for building this airstrip was so we'd have a way to take the gospel out from our area here and we could take our teachers and our translated materials and take it out and do outreach.
2: bogum di yekecak yok yekecak ne me ne nona wene git kupiga diga eko aleku kutik ba tu me puga gi dine ane git no yok be de gecak sepulu kom mini ne di nora mini ra tu ye ne mini na di ye Wenar panah yot negara kami, mini panah panggung gotik nama, nit di wigania mono kerak nama, mini nit, mini babi kicarak
1: So now, not all of us are uh, called, I understand, to do, to do that, um, but we are all compelled to figure out what kind of courageous, costly, and sic- sacrificial love looks like in our lives. It may not look like that, but we need to figure out what it looks like in our lives because that's what Jesus calls, that's what Jesus demands from us. And I'd submit to you that we don't get the luxury anymore of just ignoring it in apathy. Well, the third point is that Jesus talks about his followers being people of uncommon grace. Look at verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. It's a pretty common verse. Many of you have probably seen it before. It's a challenging verse. Those are kind of difficult words. It's like, what does that mean? How do we do that? And is Jesus saying that we can't make moral judgments or ethical calls? And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you look at this sermon and if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus cuts a moral path. I think here what Jesus is focusing on or addressing is an attitude, a judgmental attitude. He's saying to his followers, we are not to have an attitude of the heart that condemns, but instead be people of grace. Uh, The writer J.R. Stott says that this verse, in this verse, Jesus is calling us to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God. We are recipients of God's grace. If you are um, here and you've decided to follow Jesus, you are a recipient of that grace. And we are consumers of that grace. We need that grace. We need it every day. And although we're great consumers of that grace... We're not always great, we're not always really good in retailing that grace. We're not always great in distributing that grace, in communicating that grace, in giving that grace. In fact, I think there are times where we become pretty proficient at calling foul on others, but not very good at dispensing grace and hope to help broken people in their journey through this really fallen and difficult world. And in reflecting on this, I think that we often forget who we are and where we came from, that followers of Jesus should be people who are real and transparent. We should be the most real and the most transparent people ever because of what God has done in our lives. But instead, we often create images. And now it's easier to create images of social media, right? I mean, we really create images. They're not really real. And we're doing it in a world where people are dying for people in their lives who are real, who have received God's grace, who know that they need God's grace every day, and who share that grace with others. People who are real and people who are transparent is what our world is dying for. Um, So we have three children. Uh, all are adults now, uh, 27, 25, and 20. So our youngest, Sydney, um, who's 20, uh, came into our life, as you can tell by the math, uh, when we had a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and then we had Sid. And uh, our life, we've always sort of lived a pretty full life, and um, it, it was no different when our kids were young. And so Sydney hit our life, and um, it was have car seat, we'll travel, Sid. This is what it's like to be a Swanson. Here we go. We didn't really slow down. But it's funny when you get to that third kid, particularly where there's like this five-year gap, right? Um, at that point, we had a seven-year-old and we had a five-year-old. Um, we had done a lot of the, you know, we've been good parents. We tried to be good parents and, you know, we'd go through the exercise of putting our children to bed at night and praying with them and reading to them and all the things that we would do. Well, by the time a third kid comes around, you know, I, we're not as good, okay? <laughs> and... Um, you know, your first kid, I mean, I, like my son Jordan was here in the first hour. I'm like, I got to apologize to him all the time for just how hard I was. <laughs> you know, trying so hard as a young dad and that first kid. And uh, by the time you get to your third, for those of you, you who know, have more than, more than two children, by the time you get to your third, you're like, yeah, you'll be fine, right? <laughs> Nobody needs 10 toes. They're not all necessary, right? So if you lost one, that's okay. It's not a big deal. So Sid comes into our lives and... Um, and we just kind of, we keep going. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do our best. And when she's old enough to, for this to actually happen, so this is maybe, she was maybe two or three, I don't remember at the time, but she comes wandering into our room. All the kids have gone to bed, and she, she comes in our room, and Diana and still up, and she crawls up on our bed, and she says, in only the way that Sid can, nobody prayed with me. And so... Um, we did not respond in a godly manner. Um, I know all of you would just jumped out of bed and said, we would love to pray with you, Sidney. Um, we didn't. Uh, Diane looked at me and she said, uh, rock, paper, scissor? And I said, yeah, that sounds good. And so we did play rock, paper, scissor, and um, I won the first round. Diane said, it's two out of three. I'm like, okay, I see how this is going. So she wins a second hand. She wins a third hand. And she throws her arms up in the air and says, woo I won. And Sydney jumps into her arms and says, yes, mommy, you won. You get to pray with me. <laughs> I said, yes, mommy, you get to pray with her. <laughs> We're such spiritual parents. Now, it, that was before, that's a long time ago, before Facebook. How would that be portrayed on Facebook today? Be like a, I love getting to pray with my sweet little Sydney, right? Posted on Facebook a bunch of likes. When in reality, the Facebook post should be, I lost at rock, paper, scissors, and I got to go pray with my daughter. That's reality. That's where we are as, as parents. That's where we are as husbands and wives. That's where we are as neighbors. That's where we are as colleagues and our businesses. We don't always get it right. And what people around us want to know is that we don't always get it right. And that they don't always, they're not, we're not expecting that they're always going to get it right. And that God is a God of great grace. That was not the worst, you would think that's a bad parenting moment. That wasn't even our worst parenting moment, right? But God's big enough to get over those parenting moments. Our our children love Jesus and generally, I think, love us um, because, because it's a family of grace and God is big, God of grace. And we are to be people of uncommon grace and we're to distribute that to others. Well, lastly, we are to be people of uncommon generosity. Verse 38, Jesus says this to his disciples, give And it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus calls us to be people of uncommon generosity. There's a pastor that, um, he's in Silicon Valley. His name is Brian Loritz and he's on the board at Biola University. And great guy. And uh, he tweeted a couple Sundays ago this. And I thought it was apropos to what Jesus is talking about here. Brian says this. He says, giving is a declaration of war against the gods of money in our world. As we worship corporately today, we make war. We live in a world that's still very much uh, about money and position and power. And Jesus says, my followers are not going to be trapped by that. They're not going to be enslaved by that. They are instead going to be people of uncommon generosity. Um, This is something, frankly, Diane and I have uh, wrestled with often. Um, There was a time in our life where we sort of... um, looked at ourselves with, uh, um, with, a, with a sense of pride, that we were good at recognizing needs. Like that Samaritan walking by, we were good at feeling pity, but unlike that Samaritan, we weren't good at acting on that. And that for us, for us as a couple and for our family, that was, that was sin. the extent to which we were feeling pity but were apathetic and seeking to meet that need, whatever it was, was wrong. And that we needed to change that. Because we as a couple and we as a family and we as a church need to be people of uncommon generosity. And I know we, this year uh, at Sun Grove is the year of generosity. This church has been generous over the years. Generous in in its community, generous around the world. But the challenge this year is for us to even step it up and be more generous. And my, my hope for us as, 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 as a congregation is that, that Sun Grove will be known as sort of head-snapping generosity. Because we as a community understand that Jesus followers are to be people of uncommon generosity. Generosity does not look the same on me as it does on you. But it looks good on all of us. In whatever form it takes. And so Jesus is calling us all to lead a life uncommon. It's an invitation really to a new kind of greatness. A different perspective on greatness. And as I started, Jesus is anything but common. He was winsome in his uncommonness, because uncommonness is winsome. When I was, um, uh, I went to college at uh, Biola University down in Southern California. It's actually where Pastor Dave went, and uh, our youngest, Sydney, the one whom, with whom we did not pray enough, um, is a junior there. And um, so I was, I was down there in the 80s, and uh, my family lived up in the Eureka area, which is... Um, on Highway 101, kind of up behind the Redwood curtain, like right, way up there. And, uh, and so, the spring break came, and I told my mom that I wasn't coming, but I really was. So, it was one of those times where, you know, every once in a while, you're not supposed to lie. It's like, well, it's, every once in a while, it's okay, right? And so, I told my mom that I wasn't going to be able to come home for spring break. She was very disappointed, but she understood. And instead, I got in my car, and I drove the 12 hours up to Eureka, and I got there, nobody was out in front of the house, which was great. Um, of course, this was in the 80s. There was no such thing as what? Cell phones, cell phones. right, exactly. I know, just, some of you think that's just sort of odd that they've always existed. But in the 80s, there was no such thing as a cell phone. And so I, I got, got in front of the house and I walked up to the front door and it was uh, unlocked. And so I opened up the front door and our house was, um, their house, the house was kind of a tri-level. So you walk into the front door and uh, that floor where all, was where all the bedrooms were. And then upstairs was like the living area. So kitchen and family room and the like. And then downstairs was another room. So I walked in the front door. And at the same time that I walked in, we, our cat, Russell Paddington. Yes, we had a cat named Russell Paddington. And Russell Paddington came running into the house and went upstairs. And my family said, hey, who's there? They didn't even get up, right? And they saw the cat. And I'm like, oh, the cat must have come in through the house. So now I am in the house. And I run down to my sister's room. And I shut the door behind me. And then I'm thinking, what do I do now? Well, my sister had her own phone and her own phone number. And so um, I thought, well, I'm going to call my mom. So I picked up the phone, called my mom, and uh, of course she was home. I knew that because I was in the house. And uh, so we began to talk and just, she was like, I wish you could be here. And I'm so sorry that I can't be home for spring break and miss you guys terribly. And all of a sudden my sister's door opens and it's my sister and she's standing there, and she of really got this ashen look on her face because she, she knew that her mo- that mom was talking to Bobby on the phone and that Bob was in Southern California, but now he's in her room. You know, as well as moments where you're like, you can't figure out what's going on, right? You just, you can't. And so she was just sort of ashen and just sort of stood there looking at me, and so I pulled her in, sat her on the bed next to me, and just said, be quiet. So we kept, we kept talking, and so then I said to my mom, Mom, um, hang on a second. I think something's burning on my stove. I'll be right back. And so I put down the phone, walked past my sister, walked out of the room, walked up the stairs, and the stairs went right up into the kitchen. And it was perfect because my mom was standing at the stove with, you know, you know mom with her phone like this, right, and uh, stirring something and doing something, waiting for me to come back on the line. And I look over her shoulder and I say, no, mom, it's not burning at all. And she turns around. She looks at me. She drops the phone. She starts to cry. Because I think she's thinking, he went to check on the stove. Something terrible happened. He died, and now he's back in the kitchen to say goodbye. <laughs> so, we had a great week. I went home about a week or two later. I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, how are you doing? She said, why? Are you in the family room? <laughs> I think it's a great metaphor for this uncommon life. Sometimes we're so frontal. in how we deal with others about this thing called Christianity. And yet, if we are people who live with uncommon perspective, an uncommon love, an uncommon grace, an uncommon gratitude, it sneaks up the back stairs. And an unguarded moment touches people on the shoulder, and they turn around and they see the winsomeness of Jesus. That's the way this is supposed to work, I think. And that's why it's so important to live as best as we can this life that's uncommon. So I'm going to encourage you to do something. Maybe you've taken some notes, at least maybe you've written in the four points. And what I'd encourage you to do this week as we go into Easter is pick one. One, just one of these. Don't walk out saying, I'm going to do all four of these. No, you're not. Pick one. Maybe, maybe this is just a week where you think, you know, we as a family need to focus more on being uncommon in our generosity. Or maybe there's just people in our lives that we know that need uncommon grace and we haven't been given it. Or there's some challenging situations where we need to cross some barriers and be people of uncommon love. Circle one, put a star next to it, focus on that. Ask God to show you how this is supposed to look in your life. Let's pray together. God, we are people who need um, your uncommon perspective. Um, we are recipients of your uncommon love. We are in- recipients of your uncommon grace and your generosity. And those need to be characteristics that are a part of our lives. And we're, frankly, God, not always very good at demonstrating those. And so we ask that you would show us where we need to be more like you and our uncommonness, and that you would do that work in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information
1: on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.